the Tennis Gambling Podcast on the Sports Game Podcast Network, presented by our Patreon. Score exclusive perks, content, and contests, including our NFL win totals contest with a $1,000 prize. Join today at sportsgamepodcast.com slash Patreon. We're also brought to you by GameTime. Download the GameTime app to get last-minute tickets at the lowest price guaranteed. Use promo code SGPN for $20 off. Welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast here on the Sports Gambling Podcast Network. It is currently early Monday morning, August 14th. Number host, as always, Scott Reichel, once again, going solo for this pod. Should be a fun one and a bit of a longer one because we do have one tournament to preview. It is preview episode time for the Cincinnati Masters, or in other words, the Western and Southern Open, which should be a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to breaking down both the outright markets as well as the quarters before getting into the lock and dog plays on some matches at the end. But before we get into any of the previews, do want to recap the action that happened on Sunday, starting off with the lock and dog picks. Overall, very successful episode. Ended up sweeping the lock and dog picks. Had a rough time in the semis as we went 0-2, but we went 2-0 in the final. And for the actual lock and dog picks, we did not pick a side. We actually picked the breaks because we saw that there was going to be a lot of wind, which was a similar story in the semifinals, and we expected to see a lot of breaks because of it, and that worked out very well. So our lock was Dimenauer to break center serve at least one time in the first set. And that cashed a minus 163 on bet 365. Then we also had for our dog the total number of breaks. We had the over five and a half breaks in the match, and that cashed at plus 120 on bet 365. Once again, similar story to the semis bunch of breaks, bunch of low serve percentages. And as a result, you saw a lot of breaks of serve. And as a result, we made a lot of money. So nice episode there. Look for another sweep here on Monday. And besides that, though, I will go through my brief takeaways from the final. Simply put, Sinner once again continues his domination against Dimenauer, and it's pretty self-explanatory. Dimenauer is a defensive-minded player because of how, I'd say, limited his firepower actually is. Sinner was able to push Dimenauer around the court, and Sinner also, once again, despite having a low first serve percentage, was able to capitalize on some big first serves at times, which got him out of trouble. But simply put, Dimenauer couldn't serve because, or couldn't hold because Sinner was just all over him. And you saw Sinner pushing Dimenauer around the court. Dimenauer couldn't really step into any of his shots and constantly deploy on his back foot. And that is why Sinner is once again undefeated against Dimenauer in their careers. So no shame for Dimenauer there. Made a final of a Masters 1000 event. Beat some great competition along the way. But Sinner was a bit too much, and Sinner ended up getting the job done. So congrats to him. That was his first Masters 1000 title. And after losing a heartbreaker to Alcaraz in the U.S. Open last year, maybe this is the confidence boost he needs to get over the hump and maybe make a semi. We'll see what happens, but either way, congrats to Sinner for winning a title. Having said that, there was a rant that I wanted to go on for the actual scheduling on Sunday, mostly involving the women's the women's side. So just for some backstory, there were two women's matches on a Sunday when there was supposed to be one because there was some bad weather on uh, Saturday night, and as a result, they had to move the Rabakina and Samsonova match from fr- from a Saturday night to Sunday. So you had a semifinal matchup early, and then the winner of that match played the final about an hour later. And simply put, it's a really stupid way of setting up your final day of the event. I get the argument might be maybe you want the men to go last. At some point, you got to realize it's not meant to be. And you got to realize that having a woman go out there after playing a three-set war with little time in between, basically no time in between, means she's going to get killed. 
And I said during the episode that we just had for the men's final, I said my thoughts briefly on the women in that episode were to blindly take whoever Pagula's against in the final because the scheduling was ridiculous. And Samsonova did not lose. She got curb stomped. She lost 6-1-6-0. And that tells you once again that the tournament organizers really fumbled the bag here on Sunday because the argument I get is, listen, nothing we can do about the semi. Bad weather. We need to get the matches in. We'll do them both on Sunday. That's fine. Having said that, at least give Samsonova a couple of hours to regroup. The idea that she's going to play a match and then immediately turn around and play another match against a fresh Pagula who ended up playing her semifinal yesterday against Swiatek, or I should say on Friday, on a Saturday. So the point is she had a full normal time of rest, and as a result, she buried Samsonova, and I thought that was once again a massive dud to a Masters 1000 event, but once again, congrats to Bagula. Not her fault. She did what she needed to do, but I was kind of impressed by her post-match press conference where she acknowledged the bad scheduling spot and she seemed very sympathetic to Samsonova's cause, which I thought was very mature. And I did definitely like the way that she addressed those questions in the press conference. I know Rabakan had some issues with the scheduling as well. And she talked about how one match went so late earlier in the tournament that Rabakan had to go to bed at about 5 a.m. It happens, especially on the East Coast. And we saw, for example, the U.S. Open last year, where Alcaraz and Sinner had that legendary five-set match, and it ended at like 3.34 in the morning. I'm sure those players also went to bed at around 6 a.m., and Alcaraz won the tournament. So I get the point Rabakin is trying to make, but at the same point, you kind of have to overcome it. It is what it is. It's going to happen. So I understand, once again, it was not the most well-organized event, and I especially hated the way that the women's semis and final were set up scheduling-wise on Sunday. Wanted to mention it, though. Congrats to Bagula and congrats to Center on winning their titles. But anyway, time to actually get into the purpose of the episode, which is previewing the tournament in Cincinnati. And we're going to start off going through the outright odds to win the event. Then we're going to segue into the quarters, then work backwards and go back to the full tournament outrights. But starting off with... The most important news of the tournament, Djokovic is allowed into the country. And I know that that sounds like an obvious conclusion. A reminder, it was not because Djokovic was not allowed to participate here last year. So we do have Djokovic back in America for this Masters 1000 event. Djokovic is the favorite at plus 187. You have Alcaraz at around 2-1. to one. You have Medvedev at 6-1. to one. Sinner at 12-1. to one. Tsitsipas at 16-1. to one. Rublev at 20-1. to one. Rune at 25-1. to one. Zverev at 33 to 1, Tiafo at 40 to 1, Fritz at 40 to 1, Rude at 50 to 1, Corda at 50 to 1, Berrettini at 50 to 1, and then you have some other series long shots like Tommy Paul, Andy Murray, Hercatch, Dimonauer, you get the point. Point is pretty solid field here with Djokovic, Alcaraz, and Medvedev. You do have probably the three best hardcore players in the world. You can make an argument, maybe four, if you want to throw Sinner in there, but there is a solid amount of high quality players, which is pretty much self-explanatory anytime you have a Masters 1000 event taking place. You tend to get the best fields imaginable. Reminder, though, Nadal and Kyrgios are not there. In fact, Kyrgios did withdraw from the U.S. Open, so you'll not be seeing him in Flushing. But either way, point is it should be a very fun tournament. 
with a lot of high-quality players, and they should result in a lot of high-quality matches. But anyway, time to actually get into the quarters, and then once again, we're going to work our way backwards into the outrights. So for the first quarter, you have Alcaraz at minus 200, you have Tiafo at plus 750, Rude at plus 850, Paul at 11-1, to Nakashima at 18-1, to and then a couple of long shots who have no chance of winning the overall quarter. Forgot to actually mention before the history of the event, so I'll go through the winners really quickly. Looking at the winners on the men's side, Chorich was the winner last year with his Cinderella run as he was able to beat Tsitsipas in the final 7-6-6-2. Year before that, you had Zverev beating Rublev. Year before that, you had Djokovic beating Raonic. Year before that, you had Medvedev beating Goffin. Year before that, you had Djokovic beating Federer. Surprisingly, though, Djokovic has only won this event twice, but he has been a runner-up king here. Djokovic has lost in the final five times in his career. So, once again, he has made some deep runs. Hasn't always crossed the finish line, but Djokovic did win the last two finals he was in for this event back in 2018 and 2020. Besides that, though, looking at once again the other winners in the past, you have a couple of them. Medvedev did win it back in 2019, so he has had success here before. Alcaraz has never won it, uh, but once again, he hasn't exactly been an elite player for that long, so I'm not surprised. Alcaraz is a short second favorite here at plus 200. Uh, Sitsipas did make a final last year. Do I want to take him at 16-1? to 1? No, but I'll get back to that in a few minutes once I go through the quarters. But once again, for the sake of the historical winners at this event, you tend to see good ralliers perform well. It is a somewhat slow, hard court, kind of close in comparison to what we just saw in Toronto. So you can plan for that accordingly, but you have seen a lot of good overall ralliers perform well in the past. Uh, we have Zverev, for example, Djokovic twice, Medvedev, Dimitrov won it in 2017, Chilich won in 2016, Federer won it seven times, which is kind of insane. But you have seen ralliers do well here, so we'll see if that's going to be the case once again in 2023. But anyway, time to get back to the quarters. So the first quarter, Alcaraz, pretty big favorite here. And I guess the argument is, is he going to look sharper on a slower hard court than he did in Toronto? Because even though he did win a couple of matches, he really did not look good in any of them. I mentioned in the breakdowns per round that I thought Shelton was in terrible form this year, and Alcaraz still had a hard time beating him. Then he had his massive comeback against Hercatch, and then he ended up losing to Tommy Paul. Now, he's in the same quarter once again as Tommy Paul. I am a bit concerned about overall stamina, because Tommy Paul did make a deep run to the semis in Toronto, and now he suddenly has a quick turnaround. We'll see how he does in that event. But for the sake of Alcaraz's draw, it's a pretty favorable one. He has a matchup against either Isner or Thompson in the round of 32 because he's a bye in the round of 64. Alcaraz is going to win that pretty easily. However, he is in line to face off against Tommy Paul in potentially the round of 16, which should be a lot of fun. Now, Paul does have a matchup against Kikmanovic and then a matchup against either Umber or Phils. So once again, not exactly the easiest section for Paul. But assuming Paul gets through, you might get an immediate rematch. And I think Paul at 11-1 to 1 is kind of intriguing because of it, especially since I really don't like the other options in the quarter. You're looking at Alcaraz, a minus 200, who is going to be the pick for most people. Tiafo, I don't trust, simply put. And I think we've seen, based on his hardcore form lately, it's good, not great. 
He also, once again, almost lost in the matchup on Sunday as he got pushed to three sets against Greek Spore. I know Greek Spore is in good form, but still not a good sign if your first match is a three-setter, and that could be an issue with conserving energy moving forward. You have Rude at 850. Now, Rude does have a pretty good draw as well. Matched up against either Purcell or Harris in the round of uh, 32 because he has a bye in the first round. Then probably Tiafo in the round of 16. So if you want to make an argument for outrights here, I think taking Alcaraz and Paul makes the most sense because you're going to let Tiafo and Rude kill each other in the round of 16 in order to get into a spot against Alcaraz or Paul. I would probably consider Alcaraz by himself, but Paul's really had Alcaraz's number. And with the court speeds being similar with Cincinnati to Toronto, that bodes well for Paul's chances. So I think for this one, I'm going to go with Alcaraz at minus 200 and Paul at 11 to 1. But I'm really not going to pick anybody else. I don't like the rest of the quarter. And that's going to be the end of that. So moving on to the second quarter, you have an open one between Sitsipas and Rublev for the most part. Sitsipas is the favorite at plus 210. Rublev is the second favorite at plus 275. Korda is at 9-1. to He's been in really bad form, though, so I'm going to stay away from him. Murray's at 10-1. to I can see Murray making a run. Then again, he did retire or withdraw from the last event because of an abdomen injury, so I am wondering how fit he actually is. Hercatch is 10 to 1. Kashanov is 12 to 1. Shelton's at 14 to 1. Jari's at 14 to 1. Chorich is 16 to 1. Uh, then you have a couple other long shots who have no chance. I mentioned Chorich solely because he won the title last year. I think he's going to lose early this year. He's not exactly in great form. So I think last year was a little bit fluky, but still wanted to mention his name at 16 to 1. Now to look at the actual picks for the second quarter, I got to look at the draw. And starting off with the draw here for Pass, he has a matchup against Shelton in the round of 32, which he should win. Might be a bit competitive, though. Then you're looking at probably Hercatch. Now, Hercatch is in the same section as Kokonakis, which should be a fun first-round match. Korda and uh, besides that, Chorich. So you might be seeing a pretty fun section there. Maybe you get Hercatch against Korda or, you know, one of those, which could be entertaining. I do think, once again, if I was going to pick uh, who I think is going to make a run, I would probably lean to Rublev because Sitsipas I just don't trust. And with his draw, including the likes of either Hercatch or Korda or maybe even Chorich, it's not the easiest spot there for a round of 16 matchup. Whereas for Rublev, he has a pretty easy spot or, uh, or matchup in the round of 32, either against Mutet or or against Rusevori. And then you're looking at what could be a matchup between uh, Jari or maybe Kashanov or Murray. Kashanov-Murray in the round of 64 is a hell of a first-round match, and I feel like letting Jari, Kashanov, and Murray kill each other is definitely the way you want to go about taking Rublev because, once again, he'll get the scraps after he should be able to beat up on, I'm assuming, Rusevori in the round of 32. But I do think, once again, looking at the players I would consider for this quarter. I'm not going to take Pass. I don't trust him enough. Rublev at plus 275, I'm going to take. I think that that's a pretty decent price. I know he lost early in the last event he was in, but it was also one of his first hardcore matches since being back from Wimbledon. So I think Rublev should look sharper this time around. As for everybody else, it's a bit tricky because once again, I mentioned how difficult that section is for her catch, etc. 10 to 1, though, is kind of appealing because Hercatch did look good on the slow hard courts in Toronto. I think I'm going to take Hercatch at 10-1. to 1. I do think he's in line to perform well 
in this spot if he can get past Kokonakis, which I think he can. So I think you might see her catch against Sitsipas, which could be a fun battle there. So give me her catch at 10 to 1. Give me Rublev at 275. And I don't think I can take Kashanov, who has not played for a while. A reminder, Kashanov missed Wimbledon, so he has not been active for a while. Murray should probably beat him in the first round, if I had to guess. But yeah, just to go through it, by the way, Kashanov has not played since the French Open in singles, which has obviously been a long time a, a long time ago. But still, it's tricky because Murray also withdrew in the middle of Toronto with an abdomen injury. So you don't exactly know what to expect from either guy in this event. I'm probably not going to pick either of them to make a deep run. So once again, I think I'm just going to deal with Rublev at 275 and her catch at 10 to 1. I'd probably consider Korda at 9 to 1, but I really don't like his recent form, so I'm not going to bother. But anyway, moving on to the third quarter in this event. The third quarter odds are consisting of one pretty hefty favorite and then a couple of other guys who might be able to get by. You have, Ber- you have uh, Berrettini in this quarter, Zverev, Rune, and Medvedev, so a pretty solid quarter in general. Dimitrov is also in there later on. But you have Medvedev at plus 110, you have Rune at plus 450, you have Zverev at 6-1, to one. you have Berrettini at 8-1, to one. and then you have Manorino at 14-1, to one. Dimitrov at 14-1, to one. McDonald at 18-1, to one. Felix at 18-1, to one. and then a couple other long shots. So to go through the overall path here, or projected path for Medvedev, overall, not bad, which is expected when he's a plus 110 favorite to win this quarter. But just to read off who Medvedev might have to face off against, he obviously does have a bye in the first round, but he would have to face off against either, uh, to go through this, either Nishioka or potentially, uh, sorry, in the first round he'd face off against either Evans or Musetti off the bye, and we just saw him beat Musetti, so I think that's going to be an easy win there. Evans can make it interesting, but I do think that Medvedev would beat him. Uh, I just think Evans is not a good enough server to fully handle Medvedev, but that could be entertaining. But Medvedev should be able to get by those. Then he's looking at either Nishioka or Zverev or Dimitrov. Zverev-Dimitrov is a really good match in the first round, so I don't exactly want to bet on either Zverev or Dimitrov in futures because either of them could win, and that's a pretty close match. I'd lean Zverev, but would it shock me if Dimitrov beat him? No. So... I think when you're looking at this quarter, Medvedev should be able to feast on what should be scraps of guys playing difficult matches. Now, for the sake of draws, if you're low on Berrettini, then Rune does have a good draw because he's probably going to face off against McDonald in the round of 32 after a bye. Then either Berrettini or Manorino. I'll assume Berrettini for the sake of this episode. So if you think that Rune is going to be able to beat Berrettini, then you might want to pull the trigger on this one. Having said that, I'm not sure Rune would actually beat Medvedev because he ended up losing to Giron in Toronto. So Rune is not exactly in great form, but we know that he's a good hardcore player as Rune did win a Masters 1000 event on hardcore last year. But I think if you're looking at odds here, Zverev I'm skipping at 6-1 to one because that matchup against Dimitrov in the first round is too difficult. Berrettini at 8-1 to one is appealing because he's against Felix in the first round. And Felix has been garbage all year long. So 8-1 to is kind of tempting. Rune has a decent path as well. Do I think he'd actually beat uh, Berrettini and Medvedev, though? That's a bit tricky. I'm not sure if he would. So I do think those odds are decent, though. 
You know what? I'm going to do it. Give me Medvedev at plus 110. Give me Rune at plus 450. And give me Berrettini as my half long shot here at 8-1. to one, And that's how I'm going to break down the third quarter. And moving on to the fourth and final quarter, you have Sinner in this section. And he's with Djokovic. So it should be a pretty fun uh, quarter there. Djokovic is minus 163 to win the quarter. You have Sinner at plus 300. Fritz at 850. Dimenauer at 16 to 1, Nori at 22 to 1, and a bunch of other serious long shots, including a couple of 100 to 1 shots. So, looking at the quarter, simply put, I think Djokovic is going to win this quarter, and I really don't think it's going to be that difficult. So, Sinner is obviously off of a very successful week where he ended up winning a title. However, he should be exhausted, and I do think it's going to be a difficult scheduling spot for him. Now, he does have a bye in the round of 64, so he should be more rested than uh, rested than others in the situation, but I do think you're looking at Sinner probably having a hard time because he has to most likely go up against Fritz, and then probably Djokovic at the bottom. Not ideal. Djokovic has a pretty easy path here. Now, he might have to face off against Fakina in the round of 32, which I think Djokovic can handle. Uh, then probably Nori or Munfi. Uh, which should be doable once again. Monfi played a lot of tennis in Toronto. I wonder about fatigue there. Same thing with Fakina, who played a lot of tennis, and he should be able to beat Echeverry. But the point is, he does not have a bye. So he's playing the round of 64, should be a bit tired. So Djokovic's section should be full of a lot of tired players because Sinner's in here, Fritz is in here, Dimenauer's in here, Fakina's in here. Monfils in here. A lot of guys that played a lot of tennis over the past week, so I think Djokovic should be able to clean up relatively easily. Also, might be a bit emotional for him, being one of his first tournaments back in the United States, you know, pre-COVID or, you know, because that was post-COVID. You get my point. Uh, he was not able to participate in some of these events over the last couple of years, so it might be a very uh, fun time for Djokovic to get another title back in America. But anyway, I think I'm really not going to pick any long shots here. I think I'm just taking Djokovic at minus 163. I'd consider a couple of other people, but once again, with the fatigue angles for a lot of guys, it's a lot of fade material. So because of that, I'm going to take Djokovic at minus 163, and that's it. So once again, the actual picks for the quarters. The first quarter, I'm going to go with Alcaraz at minus 200 and Paul at 11-1. to 1. Second quarter, I'm going to go with Rublev at plus 275, and I'm going to go with Hurkacz at 10 to 1. For the third quarter, I'm going to go with Medvedev at plus 110, Rune at plus 450, and Berrettini at 8 to 1. And for the last quarter, the fourth quarter, give me Djokovic by himself at minus 163. Now it's time to get back into the outrights to win the entire event. And once again, I feel you can tell where I'm going with this one. I am going to go with Djokovic at plus 187. I think that he's the best player here. And with Alcaraz struggling on these slow, hard courts in Toronto, I question if he's fully ready to go on a deep run and to win a title here. And I know that, of course, doubting Alcaraz is not a great play in long term, but Alcaraz has proven time and time again, either in Canada, both Toronto this year and Montreal last year, he really does not perform that well on slow hard courts. And with this being a slow hard court, I think Djokovic would beat him in a head-to-head matchup. Medvedev, I'm not going to take it 6-1 to one because I think Medvedev's not good enough to beat Djokovic or Alcaraz, so I'm not going to pick that. Sinner is appealing, but with the fatigue angle, I think I have to stay away, and he's in the same quarter as Djokovic, which should not be fun. I really don't have much else uh, that I'm tempted by. I mentioned Rublev in Canada, and he lost immediately, but Rublev at 20-1 to one is kind of appealing for that price point. I'm not sure he would beat Alcaraz or Djokovic, though. So I really don't have much 
Do I think Rune could do it? Maybe. But I don't, once again, that's a pretty tough quarter there with Medvedev and all the other guys I mentioned. So it's a bit tricky, but I think if I had to pick a long shot, I think it would be Rublev, uh, just because I think Rublev is a guy that could make a deep run if he's able to get his forehand and just his overall power strokes back on track. But he's in an open quarter with Sitsipas, who I don't trust, Korda, who's been terrible, Murray off an injury, Hercatch, who once again has been playing some good tennis. Uh, recently, but we know her catch can also fall apart quickly in matches, and it's really a weak quarter. So I think when you're looking at this overall long shot market, I don't really like many of the options, but I'm going to pick Rublev at 20 to one as a small sprinkle option at that price point. But it's mostly going to be Djokovic at plus 187, Alcaraz at plus 200, and Rublev at plus 2,000. Sorry if you wanted a bit of some longer shots, but I really don't see it. I just think it's going to be a pretty straightforward event. But anyway, that's going to wrap it up for the actual outright markets in Cincinnati. Now it's time for the lock and dog picks for some matches. But before we get into any of that, I have a quick word from our sponsor. We're brought to you by Game Time. I don't know about all of you, but I love to attend sporting events in person. And the one thing that's annoying about that is being stressed out when buying those tickets. Let me tell you right now that Game Time does solve that problem because Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all of the sports, music, comedy, and theaters near you. They also have great features on the app, including the images of seat views. And when I'm personally buying tickets, I love that feature because I like to know what my view is going to be if I do buy those tickets, and that helps me with the filtering down process before I make my purchase. But Game Time is the place for last-minute ticket deals. Forget planning months in advance. Game Time has deals on tickets tickets right up to the day of the event and game the game time guarantee means that you'll always get the best price if you find tickets in the same section and row for less game time will credit you 110 percent of the difference snag tickets without the stress with game time download the game time app create an account and use the code sgpn for 20 dollars off your first purchase terms apply again create an account or redeem the code sgpn for 20 dollars off download game time today last minute tickets lowest price guaranteed. We're also brought to you by the SGP Patreon. Sign up for the Patreon to get exclusive access to contests, including the NFL win totals contest with a $1,000 first place prize. Besides season-long contests, they also have weekly contests just for patrons, plus a monthly SGP Stories podcast, completely ad-free and full of behind-the-scenes stories from SGPN. There's even a Discord channel just for patrons. Only you can prevent corporate gambling. Do your part and sign up today. Sportscampodcast.com slash Patreon, sportscampodcast.com slash Patreon. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast. Just finished previewing the tournament Cincinnati taking place over the next week, but now it's time to get into the actual lock and dog picks for the matches uh, coming up. So starting off with the lock, I am going to go to a matchup between Fakina and Echeverry, and I'm going to go with Fakina to win in straight sets at minus 135 on BetMGM. Simply put, I know Fakina might be tired, but... To be honest, I think that he'll be able to overcome it since he is not playing on the first day of the round of 64. He is playing on Tuesday, so he does have an extra day of rest, which definitely should help him recover. But I do think when you're looking at this matchup, Fakina, first of all, is 1-0 in the head-to-head. He won in uh, 2023 in Barcelona, and he won that one in straight sets on clay. So the main reason, though, why I'm going to take it is because of the fact that Echeverry is really not a good hardcore player. He's a clay specialist, and Fakina, we saw, have a great tournament in Toronto. Pretty similar court speed, should be slow, but I think, once again, with Fakina being a lot more comfortable 
on the surface and maybe with a lot more confidence because he had a pretty bad overall year and then he was able to make a deep run to a semifinal in a Masters 1000. I'm hoping he's going to be able to build off of that performance, but it's mostly based on the fact that Echeverry is really not a great hardcore player and Fakina is in good form. I think 135 is a pretty solid price. Give me Fakina to win in straight sets. By the way, I was originally going to think of something else to do for a lock, but I realized with this episode coming out early, I didn't want to force all of you into sprinting to get picks in or maybe missing the pick if you are listening to this a bit late. So as a result, I tried to keep my lock and dog picks on Tuesday. So I'm trying to give all of you an extra day. So I skipped the Monday action if it made life easier. But the lock will be Fakina to win straight sets at minus 135. And for the dog, I am going to go to a matchup between Purcell and Harris. And for this one, actually, I'm going to take the underdog here. I'm going to go with Purcell Moneyline at plus 115 as my dog. Simply put, I think Purcell's just in better form. I know that Harris is a good server, which can definitely result in some success on hard court. But looking at the actual recent form, though, Harris did a decent job in a recent uh, challenger event as he ended up losing to uh, Brody, 6-3, 6-4, and that was in carry. That was on the 11th. But you're looking at his actual recent results, and it's not great. He ended up losing to Umber in the first match in Atlanta, then ended up losing to a last-second replacement in Washington in the first round. Then he ended up beating... Um, Mochizuki in the first round of carry that went to three sets. Then he beat Kazakhs, uh, who was a French player who I can't say I'm too familiar with in straight sets. Then he lost to Brody. I've said it several times in the show. I don't think Brody's that good of a player, but the point is Harris is not exactly in great form. Purcell, though, actually has been solid lately. So he went through qualifying in Toronto, ended up beating Polanski and Schnur. Then he ended up beating Felix in straight sets. I know Felix has not exactly been good this year, but still. And then he gave Andy Murray a serious run for his money. I thought Murray was going to kill him, and then Purcell almost won the match. Ended up losing uh, 6-7, 6-3, 5-7. So it was a very long, grueling match that he ended up losing, but he still played well. And I think that that's going to be a big reason why he might be in line to play well in Cincinnati because he took that hard loss to Murray and responded well because he ended up beating Van Ash in qualifying in three sets, and he also beat Papyron, which is a very good win there on hard court in three sets. So I think that Purcell, once again, is in much better form, and I think that he is a lot more accustomed to the courts in Cincinnati because he went through qualifying while Harris did not. Now, I do think, once again, this might be a longer match, so maybe if you want to go for extra value, you might be able to find Purcell in three, if I could find what that price would actually be uh, as I'm pulling that up. But I do think Purcell will be able to outlast Harris. They faced off once in their careers. It went to a third set tiebreak. In fact, every set was a tiebreak, but it was back in 2017, which means nothing. But I do think with based, based on the overall slower speeds of the hard court, and based on the recent form of both players, I think there's value on Purcell to win. And if you also want to look at Purcell in three, you can find that at plus 360 if you are tempted. So the point is I think Purcell should be able to get it done. And I think that even though Harris has the bigger serve, his rallying skills are not great. And the slow speed of the courts should benefit Purcell in this matchup. So once again, the lock and dog picks for the show. The lock's going to be on Fakina to win in straight sets at minus 135. And the dog will be Purcell Moneyline at plus 115 against Harris. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. We're back once again for the round of 32 onward. Until next time, though, good luck to all of you and all of your bets. Bye, everyone.